All right. Well, it's been an interesting few days, but you know, it's fall. I think things get weird in the fall. Then again, it's 2020. Things been weird all year. <laughs> um, so I did want to mention a note about women and funerals in this era. Um, not in the 1500s, but in Anne Radcliffe's and Dane Austen's era. There's a lot of um, interesting information out there online about women in funerals and what is true and what is not. It's kind of a, a hit and miss. Um, there was a definite idea that women and people in general should not show their emotions in public. Uh, it was viewed as kind of vulgar to be super emotional. Um, and that came in with the age of rationalism, which really is ushered in in the late 1700s, mid-1700s. Um, you know, people pride themselves so much on rationalism that emotionalism became viewed as negative. And so... Um, you know, women were considered the weaker sex because they had emotions. Oh my goodness, how horrible to have emotions. And they would cry. And so funerals were not necessarily appropriate places for women because they would express emotion. The other thing was, is that um, funerals took place on hollowed ground. So... Um, not, not the actual service part, but the actual burying of the individual is in a consecrated place. And so at the graveside, nobody said anything aside from sacred words, from sacred texts. Um, and so women often didn't accompany into the churchyard because at a sacred place, it would be in a, especially inappropriate to express any emotions. So you had... This general idea of anti-emotionalism, and in some places, yeah, women attended funeral services. Other places, it was forbidden to them. They weren't part of the funeral procession. They weren't part of the funeral service. They weren't part of the actual internment. Um, it really varied. Um, one thing that's noteworthy in the 1700s, um, bandits apparently particularly targeted funeral processions because there were dead people with lots of valuables that they were being buried with. Um, so like uh, some Duke's corpse got attacked, um, well, you know, the whole procession got attacked and, you know, like three people died in the raid, um, cause they were on their way to funerals. So they didn't have guns with them and swords and whatnot. So sometimes they were rowdy, awful things. So there was another reason, like you did not want women to attend. Um, so it's very interesting, anyway, that Anne Radcliffe chose to portray um, her character, Emily, attending her father's funeral all the way through his interment and everything. Um, Anne was there and she cried and had to be supported by other nuns. And uh, Anne Radcliffe was making a statement about that and in an era where that was not always a common thing some places yeah some places no and it was a discussion for the day you can read there are all sorts of articles by you know this bishop or that archdeacon or whatever um talking about the goods or ills of women attending the funeral um 
So anyway, it's just, that was an interesting side note. And I thought I'd point out because women's in funerals is one of those things that a popular tagline, like if you're going to like, um, read historical romance or something is about, you know, the women being forbidden to attend the funeral. And sometimes that was true. Sometimes it wasn't. So, um, I myself have also like seen a lot of contradictory information about it. So I decided to educate myself that week, this last weekend and about women in funerals so that I could educate you because that's what we're doing today. Um, but anyway, to our chapter, uh, Emily is now at the convent and briefly flirted with the idea of just becoming a nun and staying there forever, which in some ways might not have been a bad choice because it sounds like she's got troubles ahead for her. Um, though I always think of the mother superior in Sound of Music who was like, we can't use the nunnery to hide from the problems of the world. Anyway, sorry, totally. that's, that's like my reference for nuns. Cause you know, I'm not Catholic. So like, that, that's what I know of nuns is like sound of music and a few other things. <laughs> Madeline, you know, the cartoon show, um, Miss Clavel, was she a nun or not a nun? She was just, she dressed it in a habit. So she was a nun, right? Okay. Side sidebar. Anyway, um, so they're waiting for, um, she sent word to all her family and her aunt, who's now her guardian, Emily's guardian is supposed to be sending a manservant to help Emily go back to Love Valley. Um, and until then they're just kind of chilling at the, the convent and Lord knows where Michael and the mules are. Um, uh, uh messy. Okay. On to ch part two of chapter eight. several days after the arrival of Madame Charon's servant before Emily was sufficiently recovered to undertake the journey to La Vallée. Oh, right, she'd been sick. On the evening preceding her departure, she went to the cottage to take leave of La Boisson and his family, and she went to return them for their kindness. The old man she found sitting on a bench near the door between his daughter and his son-in-law, who had just returned from his daily labor and was playing upon a pipe the tone in tone resembled an oboe. A flask of wine stood between the man and before him a small table with fruit and bread, round which stood several generations of his grandson, fine rosy children, who were taking their supper, as their mother distributed it. On the edge of the little green that spread under the cottage there were cattle and a few sheep reposing under the trees. The landscape was touched by the mellow light of an evening sun, whose long slanting beams played through the vista of woods and lighted up the distant turrets of the chateau. She paused a moment before she emerged from the shade and gazed upon the happy group before her, on the complacency and the ease of healthy age depicted on the countenance of the Valvoisin, and the maternal tenderness of Agnes as she looked upon her children, and the innocency of infantine pleasures reflected in their smiles. Emily looked again at the venerable old man and at the cottage. The memory of her father rose up with full force in her mind, and she hastily stepped forward, afraid to trust herself with longer pause. She took an affectionate and affecting leave of La Boisson and his family. He seemed to love her as a daughter and shed many tears. Emily shed many. She avoided going into the cottage since she knew it would revive emotions that she could now not endure. 
one painful scene yet awaited her for she determined to visit again her father's grave and that she might not be interrupted or observed in the indulgence of her melancholy tenderness she deferred her visit till every inhabitant of the convent except the nun who was promising to bring her the key of the church should be retired to rest emily returned to her chamber till she heard the convent bell strike twelve when the nun came as she had appointed with a key to the private door into the opening of the church they descended together in the narrow winding staircase that led to thither the nun offered to accompany emily to the grave adding tis melancholy to go alone at this hour but the former thanking her for her consideration could not be consent to give any witness to her sorrow and the sister having unlocked the door gave her a lamp you will remember sister said she that is the east aisle which you must you will remember sister sorry it's the nun that it is the east aisle which must pass a newly opened grave hold the light to the ground that you may not stumble over the loose earth emily thanking her again took the lamp and stepping onto the church the sister marionette departed but emily paused a moment at the door a sudden fear overcame her and she returned to the foot of the staircase where she she heard the steps of the nun ascending and while she held the lamp she saw her black veil waving over the spiral balusters as she was tempted to call her back while she hesitated the veil disappeared and in the next moment ashamed of her fears she returned to the church the cold air of the aisles chilled her and their deep silence and extent feebly shone by the moonlight that seemed to go through the through descent at the gothic window would at any other time awed her into superstition now grief occupied all her attention she scarcely heard the whispering echoes of her own steps or thought of the open grave till she found herself almost on its brink the friar of the convent had been buried there on the preceding evening and as she sat alone in her chamber at twilight she heard at a distance the monks chanting the requiem for his soul this brought freshly to her memory the circumstances of her father's death and the voices mingling with low querulous peal of the organ swelled faintly glooming and affecting vis visions had arisen in her mind now she remembered them and turning aside to avoid the broken ground these re recollections made her pause pass on with quicker steps to the grave of st aubert when in the moonlight that fell athwart a remote part of the aisle she saw a shallow gliding between the pillars a shadow gliding between the pillars she stopped to listen and not hearing any footstep believed her, her fancy had deceived her and no no longer appearing to be observed proceeded st aubert was buried beneath plain marble bearing little more than his name and the date of his death near the foot of the grave of the stately monument of of the villarones emily remained at his grave till a chime that called the monk to early prayers warned her to retire then she wept over a last farewell and forced herself from the spot after this hour of melancholy indulgence she was refreshed by a deeper sleep than she had experienced for some time and on awakening her mind was more tranquil and resigned than it had been since st aubert's death but when the moment of her departure from the convent arrived all her grief returned and the memory of the dead and the kindness of the living attached her to the place and for the sacred spot where her father's manes were interred she seemed to feel all those tender affections which we conceive for home the abbess repeated many kind assurances of regard at their parting and pressed her to return if she ever should find her consider her condition elsewhere unpleasant many of the nuns also expressed unaffected regret at her departure 
and Emily left the convent with many tears and followed by a sincere wish for her happiness. She had traveled several leagues before the scenes of the country through which she passed had power to rouse her for a moment from the deep melancholy into which she'd sunk. And when they did, it was only to remind her that on her last view of them, St. Aubert was at her side, and to call out the remembrance of the remarks he had delivered on similar scenery. Thus, without any particular occurrence, passed the day in languor and dejection. She slept the night on a town on the skirts of Longdeloc, and the following morning entered Gascony. Towards the close of the day, Emily came within the view of the plains of the neighborhood of La Vallée, and the well-known objects of former times began to press upon her notice. You'll notice how much quicker one travels when one doesn't take the random mountain roads and one can just, you know, juggle on straight without stopping to look at every mountain. That's kind of fascinating, actually, how much faster the return trip was. It was like two days. It's amazing. Anyway. Um, and the well-known objects of the former ties began to press upon her notice and with them recollections that awakened her tenderness and grief. Often while she looked through her tears upon the wild grandeur of the Pyrenees, now varied in the rich lights and shadows of evening, she remembered that when she last saw them, her father partook with her the pleasures they inspired. Suddenly some scene which had particularly been pointed out to her would present itself, and the sick languor of despair would steal upon her heart. There, she would exclaim, there are the very cliffs, there are the very wood of pines which he would look on with such delight as we pass this mountain, this cottage peeping up from among the cedars which he bade me to remember and copy with my pencil. Oh, my father, I shall never see you more. As she drew near the chateau, these melancholy memorials of pastimes multiplied. At length, the chateau itself appeared amid the glowing beauty of St. Aubert's favorite landscape. This was an object which called for fortitude, not for tears. Emily dried hers and prepared to meet with calmness the trying moment of her return to the home where there was no longer a parent to welcome her. Yes, said she, let me not forget the lessons he has taught me, how often he has pointed out the necessity of resisting even a virtuous sorrow, how we have often admired together the greatness of a mind that can suffer and reason. Oh, my father, if you are permitted to look down upon your child, will it please you to see that she remembers and endeavors to practice the precepts you have given her. A turn on the road, which now allowed a nearer view of the chateau and the chimneys tipped with light, rising from behind St. Aubert's favorite oaks, whose foliage partly concealed the lower part of the building, Emily could not repress a heavy sigh. This, too, was his favorite hour, said she as she gazed upon the long evening of shadows stretched athwart the landscape. How deep the repose, how lovely the scene, how lovely and tranquil as in former days. Again she resisted the pressure of sorrow, till her ear caught the gay melody of the dance, which she had so often listened to as she walked with St. Aubert on the margin of the Garonne, which her fortitude, and when all her fortitude forsook her, she continued to weep till the carriage stopped at the open gate, that opened upon what was now her own territory. She raised her eyes with the sudden stopping of the carriage, and saw her father's old housekeeper coming out into the open gate. Manchon also came running and barking before her, when his young mistress alighted, fawned, and played round her, gasping with joy. Okay, this is the first time we've heard of a dog. You'd think that would have been... Dear mademoiselle, said Teresa, and paused, and looked as if she would offer something of condolement to Emily, whose tears now prevented reply. 
the dog still fawned and ran around her and then flew towards the carriage with a short bar bark. Ah, mademoiselle, my poor master, said Theresa, whose feelings were more awakened than her delicacy. Manchon's gone to look for him. Emily sobbed aloud and looked towards the carriage, which was stood with the door open, and saw the animal spring into it and instantly leap out, then his nose on the ground to run around the horses. "'Don't cry so, mademoiselle,' said Theresa. "'It breaks my heart to see you.' The dog now came running to Emily, and then returned to the carriage, then back again to her, whining and discontented. "'Poor rogue,' said Theresa. "'Where thou hast lost thy master, thou mayst well cry. But come, my dear young lady, be comforted.' What shall I get to refresh you? Emily gave her hand to the old servant and tried to restrain her grief while she made some kind inquiries concerning her health. But still she lingered in the walk which led to the chateau, for within was no person to meet her with the kiss of affection. Her own heart now palpitated with impatient joy to meet the well-known smile, and she dreaded to see objects which she would recall the former remembrance of her former happiness. The full remembrance of her former happiness. She moved slowly towards the door, paused, went on, and then paused again. How silent, how forsaken, how forlorn did the chateau appear. Trembling to enter it, yet blaming herself for the delaying which she could not avoid, she at length passed into the hall, crossed the hurried step as if afraid to look around, and then opened the door of the room, which she was wont to call her own. The gloom of the evening gave solemnity, solemnity to its silent and deserted air. The chairs, the tables, every article of furniture so familiar to her in happier times spoke eloquently of her heart. She seated herself without immediately observing it at the window, which opened round the garden, and where Snowbear had often sat with her, watching the sun retire from the rich and extensive prospect that appeared beyond the groves. Having indulged her tears for some time, she began more, to be more composed, and then when Theresa, after the baggage had been deposited in her lady's room, again appeared so she had so far recovered her spirits as to be able to converse with her i have made up the green bed for you mademoiselle said theresa as she set a coffee upon the table i thought you would like it better than your own now i but little thought this day would this this day month i little but thought this day month that you would come back alone i don't know what i'm saying i'm just an old lady Ah, well a day, the news almost broke my heart, but it did come. Who would have believed that my poor master, when he went from home, would never return again? Emily hid her face behind a handkerchief and waved her hand. Do taste the coffee, said Theresa. My dear young lady, be comforted, we all must die. My dear master is a saint above. Emily took the handkerchief from her face and raised her eyes full of tears towards heaven. Soon after she dried them, and in a calm but tremulous voice began to inquire concerning some of her late father's pensioners. Pensioners, like we've mentioned, are like the uh, old servants that he pays out a lifetime like um, retirement to. Um, pensioners might also be like um, not servants of the house, but like laborers who have um, stopped working the lands but might um, get a pension after life um or after after they quit their work so it would be good manners to inquire after the pensioners and obviously to pay their pensions still alas a day said theresa as she poured out the coffee and handed it to her mistress 
all that could come have been here every day to inquire after you and my master. She then proceeded to tell that some were dead whom they had left well, and others who were ill had recovered. Ah, see, mademoiselle, said Theresa, there is old Mary coming up from the garden now. She has looked every day these three years as if she would die, yet she's alive still. She has seen the chaise at the door and knows you are come home. The sight of this poor old woman would have been too much for Emily, and she begged Theresa to go and tell her that she was too ill to see any person that night. Tomorrow I shall be better, perhaps, but give her this token of my remembrance. Emily sat for some time, given up to sorrow, not an object on which her eye glanced, but awakened some remembrance that led immediately to the subject of her grief. Her favorite plants, which St. Aubert had taught her to nurse, the little drawings that adorned the room, which his taste had instructed her to execute, the books that he had selected for her to use, in which they had read together, her musical instruments, whose sounds he loved so well, which he sometimes awakened himself. Every object gave new force to sorrow. At length she roused herself from this melancholy indulgence, and then summoning all her resolution, stepped forward into those forlorn rooms, which, though she dreaded to enter, she knew yet more powerfully would affect her if she delayed to visit them. Having passed through the greenhouse, her courage for a moment forsook her when she opened the door of the library, and perhaps the shade which the evening and foliage of the trees near the windows threw across the room heightened the solemnity of her feelings on entering that apartment, where everything spoke of her father. There was an armchair in which he used to sit. She shrunk when she first observed it, for she had often seen him seated there, and the idea of him rose so distinctly in her mind that she almost fancied she saw him before her. But she checked the illusions of dis tempered imagination, though she could not subdue a certain degree of awe, which now mingled with her emotions. She walked slowly to the chair and seated herself in it. There was a reading desk before it, which lay an open book, as if it had been left there by her father. It was some moments before she recovered the courage enough to examine it, and when she looked at the open page, she immediately recollected that St. Aubert, on the evening before his departure from the chateau, had read her some passages from his favorite author. The circumstance now again affected her extremely. She looked at the page and wept and looked again. To her, the book appeared almost sacred and invaluable, and she would not have moved or closed the page, which he had left open, for the treasures of the Indies. Yes, hi, kitty. Can you guys hear my cat? She's trying to tell me that she's ready for dinner. And I'm like, girl, it's only four o'clock. Chill out. Still she sat before the desk. She could not resolve to quit it, though the increasing gloom of the profound silence of the apartment revived to the degree of painful awe. Her thoughts dwelt on the probable state of departed spirits, which she remembered the affecting conversation which had passed between St. Aubert and La Boisson the night preceding his death. As she moved, she saw the door slowly open. A rustling sound in a remote part of the room startled her. Through the dusk, she thought she perceived something move. The subject she had seen had been considering, and the present tone of her spirits, which made her imagination respond from the impression of her senses, gave her a sudden terror of something supernatural. She sat for a moment, motionless, then dissipated her reasoning return. What is it that I should fear? said she. If the spirits of those we love ever return to us, it is in kindness. The silence, which again re reigned, made her ashamed of her late fears, and she believed that her imagination had deluded her, or that she had heard one of those unaccountable noises which sometimes occur in old houses. The same sound, however, returned, and, distinguishing something moving towards her, 
In the next instant, pressed beside the chair, she shrieked. But her fleeting senses were instantly recalled, and on perceiving it was Manchon who sat beside her, and now licked her hands affectionately. Perceiving her spirits unequal to the task she had assigned herself of visiting deserted rooms of the chateau this night, when she left the library she walked out into the garden and sat down under the terrace that overhung the river. The sun was now set, but all under the dark branches of the almond trees, and would seem the saffron glow out of the west, spreading beyond the twilight of, middle air, of the middle air. The bat flitted silently by, and now and then the morning note of a nightingale was heard. The circumstances of the hour brought to her recollection of some lines which she had once heard St. Aubert recite on this very spot, and she now had a melancholy pleasure in repeating. Sonnet Now the bat circles on the breeze of eve that creeps in shuddering fits along the wave and trembles midst the woods through the cave whose lonely sighs the wanderer deceive. For oft this melancholy charms his mind. He thinks the spirit of the rock he hears, nor listens with sweetly thrilling fears to the low mystic murmurs of the wind. Now the bat circles and the twilight dew falls silent round, and o'er the mountain cliff the gleaming wave, the far-discovered skiff, spreads the grave veil of soft harmonious hue, so falls o'er grief the dew of pity's tear, dimming her lonely visions to despair. Emily, wandering on, came to St. Aubert's favorite plane tree, where so often at this hour they'd sat beneath the shade together, and with her dear mother had so often conversed on the subject of the future state. How often, too, had her father expressed the comfort he derived in believing that they should meet in another world. Emily, overcome by these recollections, left the plane tree, and as she leaned pensively on the wall of the terrace, she observed a group of peasants dancing gaily on the banks of the Garonne, which spread in a broad expanse below and reflected the evening light. What a contrast they formed with the desolate and unhappy Emily. They were gay and debonair, and they were as they were wont to be, when she too was gay, when St. Aubert used to listen to their merry music, with a countenance beaming with pleasure and benevolence. Emily, having looked for a moment on the sprightly band, turned away, unable to bear the remembrances that now excited. But where, alas, could she turn, not to meet new objects to give acuteness to grief? As she walked slowly towards the house, she was met by Theresa. "'Dear Mademoiselle,' said she, I have been seeking you up and down this half hour. I was afraid some accident had happened to you. How could you like to wander about in this night air? Do come into the house. Think what my poor master would have said if he could see you. I am sure you, I am sure when my dear lady died, no gentleman could take it more to heart than he did. Yet you know how seldom he shed a tear. Pray, Sir Theresa, Theresa, cease said Emily, wishing to interrupt this ill-judged but well-meaning harangue. Theresa's loquacity, however, was not silenced so easily. And you used to grieve, too. He often told you how wrong it was, for my mistress was happy. And if she was happy, as I'm sure he is so, too, for the prayers of the poor, they say, reach heaven. During this speech, Emily walked silently to the chateau, and Theresa lighted her across the hall into the common sitting parlor, where she laid the cloth with one solitary knife and fork for supper. Emily was in the room before she perceived that it was not her own apartment, but she checked the emotion which inclined her to leave it, and she seated herself quietly by the supper table. Her father's hat hung upon the opposite wall. While she gazed at it, a faintness overcame her. Theresa looked at her and then at the object on which her eyes were settled and went to remove it. 
But Emily waved her hand. No, said she, let it remain. I am going to my chamber. Nay, mademoiselle, supper is ready. I cannot take it, said Emily. I will go back to my room and try to sleep. Tomorrow I shall be better. This is poor doings, said Theresa. Dear lady, do take some food. I have dressed a pheasant, and a fine one it is. Old Monsieur Barreau sent for it this morning. I saw him yesterday, and told him you were coming. And I know nobody that seemed more concerned with the sad news than he. Did he? said Emily in a tender voice when she felt her poor heart warm for a moment in the ray of sympathy. At length, her spirits were entirely overcame, overcome, and she retired to her room. End chapter 8. All right. Um, so I, I, before I get to that, I realized I might have caused some confusion when I was talking about the age of rationalism. So Gothism, which is Anne Radcliffe's like claim to fame, comes in at the turn of the century um, or thereabouts. And it is a response to rationalism where they celebrate the supernatural. And with it, you notice many other contradictory themes of the rationalism. Um, it's, it's very interesting, but from what I understand of the Gothic movement at its core, it was a idea that rationalism only takes you so far. There is just stuff we don't know. Um, and so Gothic writers and, um, artists, they enjoyed challenging people with how far does your science take you? And then what is good emotion? What is, um, cause the, the world was a dark and sad place uh, and Gothism really reflects that, you know, with tragedy upon tragedy, um, I think there's a gothic story that's popular where someone, like, gets eaten by pigeons or something. I mean, you know, like, I mean, so, like, sometimes it's just, like, bizarre, but, like, they're stretching a point here that the world has sadness and rationalism isn't necessarily the best counter to that. Um, it's interesting. So, and then, of course, romanticism arises and Jane Austen's era um, arises just in time to meet the romantics movement. Um, who leads into the naturalist movement, which um, Anne Radcliffe is also touching on. So there's all these sort of different schools of thought that kind of overlap here. Um, and you'll probably like, what is with all of these schools of thought overlapping at once? Like, what's going on? The Industrial Revolution is essentially what happens that really... Um, the world just starts really changing really, really fast. And so you get a lot of different schools of thought that keep tumbling over one another. So you've got several things going on at once. So anyway, I realize I'm kind of confusing things, but anyway, I wanted to say that. And then Emily's home at last. I love the old maidservant who's like, stop being a whiner and upset about your dead family. And Emily's like, I get to be, I'm alone now. I get to be sad. Uh, but it is interesting. Um, so we'll have to see. We don't really know, um, yet what's going to happen. Emily doesn't really have money to keep living like this. So things are going to have to come to a head here. So we'll find out what goes on in chapter nine.
All right. I'll see you guys then.